You ever notice how one ingredient can make the world a difference? Maybe you've had a situation like this. I distinctly remember, I was probably six, seven years old at the time. My, my parents had a party and a bunch of people were, were hanging out at the house. And us kids, we were running around and we were exhausted. So I bolted inside, completely parched, went to the fridge, pulled it open. And to my surprise, there was already a glass of orange juice there waiting for me. I remember pulling it out, looking at it because it had, Uh, some ice cubes in it, thinking that's kind of weird, but I was so thirsty, I didn't give it a second glance. Took a massive chug of this orange juice, and uh, let's just say it uh, it tasted a little screwy to me, if you get my uh, picture there. You know, it's funny because one ingredient can make the world of difference in things. Like it's like uh, if, you're, if you're baking, let's say, and you accidentally replace salt and sugar. They look the same, but they taste vastly different. Or instead of you using baking soda, you ended up using baking powder. It's going to mess the whole thing up. Simple ingredients, though. Think about it. If I were to say, hey, what do you need for a good cheeseburger or just to have a cheeseburger? You can maybe have all the different toppings you want, but in order to have a cheeseburger, you really only need three things. You need meat, cheese, and a bun. Well, what about other things in life too? Let's say uh, you're getting your first car or you're trying to help someone kind of figure out what their first car is going to be. You might say, well, what do you look for in a vehicle? You might say, well, number one, you want something reliable. Number two, you've seen the price of gas these days. You probably want something with at least decent gas mileage. And thirdly, maybe something where the insurance isn't too high. How about relationships? If you say, what are the key ingredients or characteristics of a strong relationship? Whether that's a friendship, a relationship with a kid or a spouse, you might say, well, number one, communication. Number two, commitment, knowing they're going to be there. Number three, the ability to show grace to one another. What about, though, the qualities of a strong disciple, a strong faith in following Jesus? How do we know if someone is faithful and committed to their life in Jesus? As we continue our study through the book of Acts, we are going to look at perhaps three ingredients or three characteristics. Now, albeit they're not the most exclusive things, but three key ingredients to a strong discipleship in Jesus. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 14 this morning. Guys, Acts chapter 14 means we are halfway through our study through the book of Acts. Hello to those of you online, those of you in Champaign. Uh, you guys are getting this message Together this morning, I get the chance to be at our banner location preaching live. Uh, Be praying for us as we continue to search for the next Urbana location pastor as well. Here's where we've been so far, though. And last week, we kind of set off this idea that in Acts chapter 13, the tides are going to shift from the church being focused in the region of Jerusalem, seeking the Jewish people. Now it's going to be the apostle Paul taking the gospel and the good news to the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people. But we started last week noting that Paul's going to have this pattern. He's going to go to a new city. He's going to go to a new place. He's going to go straight for the synagogue, preach the gospel. And who's ever there, he's going to then take them, plant a new church, and then go to the next spot. And some of these cities that we're going to see throughout Acts, he's actually going to write letters back to them to help them in their faith with Jesus. Now, if you missed last week's message, we really took time to reframe what it means to not just believe in the gospel, but to live in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So if you missed last week's message, I highly encourage you go grab that one as well sometime this week. 
And so today we're actually going to pull a Ferris Bueller. We're going to start at the end and we're going to see how Paul found himself in this mess, so to speak. So beginning in Acts chapter, or near the end of Acts chapter 14, I should say, it gives us this in verses 21 and 22. It says this, it says, so they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. It says, then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true in the faith. And look what they say next. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas, it says, they return to these three places, Lystra, uh, Iconium, and Antioch, to strengthen the disciples, and they give this thing. There's a lot of hardship that you might have to go through in order to enter the kingdom of God. Perhaps one of the things is a better way to think about this, and maybe this is a question that we can all prompt our hearts and our minds with for the rest of this morning, it's this. Is would you rather be better off spiritually or physically? Maybe another way to put it, would you rather be better off spiritually or materially in this life? While those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, you can't necessarily, it doesn't mean you, if you want to be good and strong spiritually that you can't have possessions or, or a good physical life as well too. But if you had to choose, just if you had to choose, which would you choose? That's kind of what Acts chapter 14 is all about. We're going to see the ups and downs, the ins and outs, how life can be good, bad, or somewhere in between. And in a lot of these circumstances, Paul probably would have faced the temptation to toss in the towel. There's a lot of probably temptation for Paul to look at the circumstances surrounding his life. He could pause say, well, hmm. I don't know. I don't really like what's going on. I don't like the way culture is treating me because of my faith. I don't like how these people are responding to my faith. You know, maybe it's just better off that I just kind of quit and move on, pack it up, go on to do something else. But Paul doesn't. He remains strong and steadfast because he knows the truth and the hope waiting for us in the promises of God. And man, I don't know about you, but I can certainly relate to that. Because when I look at my own life, sometimes I think it'd be a whole lot easier to toss at it. We look at the things going on in our world, the way in which sometimes we are treated as a result of our faith or what's going on that's outside of our control. It might be a little bit easier to say, you know what, God, I got this. I'm gonna use my strength, my power, my will to give myself a sense of comfort or security. But Paul is going to encourage us in Acts chapter 14, Whether things are good, bad, or somewhere in between, do not lose the unwavering hope and trust that you have in Jesus Christ. So Paul is going to bounce around kind of four or five different cities in the region of Galatia, and he will eventually, at the end of Acts chapter 14, he's going to plant a church, establish leadership, but then about a decade later, he's going to write back to them in this letter, well, called Galatians. And he's going to say things like this. He's going to say things like, well, remember, there is no us and them in the kingdom of God. There is only we. He's going to encourage them that you no longer live, but Christ who lives in you. Walk in your life in the spirit, not your human nature. Almost as if to say, if you call yourself a Christian, then you should probably begin to act like Christ. Paul's actually going to wrap up his letter to the Galatians. With these words, and if you flip to Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 7, he says this. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will receive eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong in the family of believers. But then look what he says in verse 17. He almost concludes it with this. He says, so from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. What happened in Galatia? What happened in these cities we're going to see here in Acts chapter 14 for Paul to say, don't be weary in doing good. Don't lose that steadfast heart or spirit or energy for following Jesus. Even to the point in which he says, I bear the marks of Christ on my body. I think it's time to find out. Acts chapter 14, going back to the beginning, verse 1. Here we go, back in time. This is what it says. It says, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks, a.k.a. Gentiles, believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So the the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled the Laodicean cities in Lystra and Derby to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. Interesting start here to this journey, right? They went, they preached, a great multitude believed, so that's good. And then all of a sudden, there is a feedback here. There's a, a negative pushback and opposition, so to speak, to what Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And says, so they kind of began to play some mind games with the people. It says they tried to poison their minds. What they're essentially trying to do is to say, perhaps we can make you afraid of believing what Paul talked about. Perhaps we can make it disadvantageous to believe in the gospel, that if we can get a fear into your mind, we can perhaps get you to not believe. You know, sometimes we use that phrase, well, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, they could never hurt me. And you and I all know that sometimes words are the most hurtful things that can come our way. Our culture today, it's a, it's a common phrase. You might have heard it. Perhaps you've used it before. It's this thing called cancel culture. And what cancel culture says is, I want you to be afraid of holding to an unpopular belief or opinion. I want you to be afraid of holding to something that isn't woke, perhaps, so that if you, well, see this fear, I will cancel you. And maybe if you know, if you think that I will write you off as a person, then you won't hold to that belief as strongly poisoning the mind is what it's called. I believe this is one of Satan's greatest tactics against us and in our faith. He tries to poison our mind as a weapon he uses. And not just with lies of the culture, but lies from your past. He tries to poison our minds by telling us, you know that sin you committed? You know that mistake? You know those hiccups, those choices you made back then? Yeah, that's really who you are. Could God actually love you? 
Does God actually pursue you? Does God actually have a purpose for you? Do you really think God would do something with someone like you who's done that in the past? That's a poisoning of the mind that Satan is trying to work its way in to get you to stop following Jesus. And this is why the Bible is so uh, vehement about protecting your mind. That's why Paul talks about the importance of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he'll say, we destroy the arguments of every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive and obey it to Christ. Because our lives are often going in the direction of our strongest thoughts. So whether your circumstances are good, whether your circumstances are bad, or somewhere in between, Here's the first ingredient, if you will, of a strong disciple, and it's this. It's that strong disciples grow in their knowledge of God. Strong disciples have a desire to know God deeper, to know God more, to not just know the basics about God, but to continue to fill their minds so that they cannot be poisoned by the world, so that they can't be poisoned by Satan's lies, but so that they can stand firm in their knowledge, not just of who God is, but of what God has put in forth of our lives. You see, if you looked at verse 1, verse 3, and verse 7 of chapter 14, you would see that Paul and Barnabas went from a good to confusing to kind of a bad situation. But all three of those verses say the same thing. They continued to preach. Why? Because of the knowledge they had of God. They knew God's hope and plan and his mission. See, the knowledge of God is important because when the storms of life come, what are you going to do? There are definitely going to be storms who come your way. Perhaps you're in a storm, so to speak, of life right now. Maybe there's a season that's a little unplanned or unforeseen that has been, you've been faced with. And the knowledge of God becomes vitally important. Knowledge of his presence, the knowledge of his goodness, the knowledge of his love and his grace and his, and his passion for you. That when the storms of life come, if we don't grow in our knowledge of God, we will be missing an anchor to the soul. Or perhaps without it, we'll begin to trust things other than God. But the truths of God, the knowledge of God reminds us that he is dependent, not just in the calmness of life, but whether things are good, bad, or in between. So Paul and Barnabas, they kind of get out of Dodge, they get out of Derby, they go to a new place, and this is where we pick up with them on their journey. Picking back up in verse 8, follow along with me. It says, so in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been there that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. That, at that, the man jumped to his feet and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lysian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. This was the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting. They're kind of trying to readdress the crowd, but then it ends with this in verse 19. 
It says, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the place they just fled from. Why? And they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. So Paul and Barnabas, they head to a new town. They find a lame man. They perform a miracle because of the spirit of God in them. And then the Gentiles then kind of respond in some way, and other ones hear about him. But it's interesting. They begin to respond saying, oh, you guys must be the Greek gods we've thought about. You must be the Greek gods we've been worshiping for, for decades, for centuries. You have finally come down to us. What a great privilege it is to have you here. And Paul's like, they rip their clothes off. It's a sign of mourning. It's a sign of anger. Almost as if to say, no, you've missed the point. And they affirm, we are not anything but men. You need to follow and believe in the one true God who's given us this power. Translation, stop listening to your hearts that have led you astray and pay attention to the spirit of the living God who loves you, who have created you, who put us on this earth. You ever... Um, get some what I call no-duh advice. And I do um, some premarital counseling, and sometimes one of my favorite things is to offer these couple what I call no-duh advice. And those are just things where it's like, well, yeah, of course. No-duh, that makes sense, or that's good advice. And one of my things, almost every couple is going to ask some form or fashion of the question, Eric, what's the secret to a good marriage? I always say a couple things, but number one is usually communication. you got to talk to each other. You can't have unmet expectations because oftentimes unmet expectations come from a result of unexpressed expectations. And people are like, well, duh, that sounds kind of obvious. Or think about a diet, for example. Say you're trying to lose some weight. Almost every single diet is going to say something, well, don't drink your calories. Avoid soda or sugary things. Don't avoid or avoid all the juices because that sugar is going to turn into fat. And that's kind of like, well, yeah, no, duh. I should just drink water. Or how about Getting a good education. What's the secret to perhaps getting good grades? Well, maybe you should consider not cramming the night before a test. And that would probably help. Well, no, duh, some of us might say. Well, this is kind of what Paul is saying to him. He's saying, hey, your heart is emotional. Your heart has led you astray. Don't believe everything it tells you. And one would like to think that the response would be like, oh, yeah, no, duh. I've realized that about myself, that when we just go off of emotions or we just go with what feels right, oftentimes it leads us astray. The the Proverbs says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And yet, don't we listen to our hearts all of the time? It's something that we have to protect ourselves from. And so here's the second point for us this morning, that whether your circumstances are good bad or somewhere in between, strong disciples have changed hearts. We have changed hearts, transformed hearts, new hearts because of the living God who died on a cross and rose from the grave who has come into our life. I like to think how hard would it have been or perhaps how how easy would it have been for Paul and Barnabas to take some of the credit that they perform this miracle, they preach the good news, all these people respond and they say, you, you must be like a God. You, you must be a God that has come down to us. How easy would it have been for them to take some of that glory and credit from God? You know what? 
I did do that miracle. You know what? I did open my mouth. You know what? I, I, I did put those words together in the elaborate sentences that have won you over. But they don't. All of the glory from this situation, they push back to God because their heart has been changed. Our hearts are naturally prideful. Our hearts naturally want to take credit and get glory. And yet the heart of a transformed disciple is one that is changed and constantly changing to be more like the heart of Jesus. You know, the no-duh advice from Paul and Barnabas might have been here, something like, well, don't try to take God's glory from him. That's kind of like no-duh advice, right? Don't try to take credit for what God has done in someone's life. Don't try to take credit for what God has done in your life. Give God the glory that he is due. Because when we don't assign God his glory of what he has done in our lives, we not only diminish the power of God, but we also minimize our faith because, well, we think, well, yeah, I've done some good stuff. It is my work. It is my strength. It is my goodness has gotten me there. But from getting up into the morning to the healing of cancer, It's all by the glory and the sovereignty, the grace of God. You know, it's like uh, helping a toddler across the monkey bars. I don't know if you have a toddler. I've got a toddler at home, and she loves the monkey bars. And she's not really strong enough to hold herself up on the monkey bars. She's definitely not tall enough to reach it. But we'll go to perhaps the playground here at the church or a playground at the park. And one of the things that we'll do is I'll put her up on the monkey bars and I'll hold her by her feet or by her waist and watch her kind of do one after another after another. And she'll get to the end and she'll hop off and she'll go, ta-da! I made it. I can do the monkey bars. And you know what I tell her? That wasn't you. That was all me, little girl. Get it right. No, of course not. I tell her, oh, congratulations, you did it knowing full well that it's me holding her up, doing all of the work. Imagine if that's kind of what our our faith life is with God. God is holding us up. He's allowing us to participate in the practice or the exercise. But we better not think for a second that it was us who deserve the glory. Because everyone everywhere is getting glimpses of God's goodness. And we are merely vessels to portray that to anyone who would listen. And so Paul and Barnabas, because their hearts were changed, they were ready to take a seat in the back for the glory of God. Here's the last part of our story this morning. We're going to pick back up in verse 21 here today. Acts chapter 14, picking up in verse 21, says these words. It says, so they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders uh, for, for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. Skip to verse 27. It says, so then on arriving there, they went to Antioch, so they went to one of the other cities. Arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. You know, it's interesting that we're kind of back to where we started here at this point. 
We kind of see the events that led to them needing to return. They go to a city, they preach the gospel. Some people respond. Other peoples create opposition. They fled, they escaped, they go to a new place. They have some more success, so much success that they think they're gods. They rightfully worship Jesus. And say, no, no, that was God doing work through us. And then the people who have opposition try to sneak up. And they actually find Paul. They beat him to the point thinking he's dead. High-fiving each other. We finally got rid of this guy. And Paul's like, just kidding, still alive. And then it says they returned. They went back to the places. Would you return to the place with the people who beat you and left you for dead? I probably wouldn't. I'd probably say, you know what? I think the Spirit's leaving me, leading me to a new city, new place. But Paul said, no, we got to go back. Our work's not finished because we need to strengthen the disciples, the people there who heard the gospel, who heard the good news. But when he goes back, he focuses on them and them alone. He avoids the temples. He avoids the synagogues. He avoids the Jewish leaders and says, he says, we've come back to strengthen the disciples. And so whether circumstances are good, bad, or somewhere in between, this is number three, strong disciples strengthen one another. Let me say that again. Whether circumstances are good, bad, or somewhere in between, strong disciples strengthen one another. The book of Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And Paul and Barnabas, they make this first emphasis to say, we've got new places to go, but before we leave, we're going to establish churches. And we're going to establish a group of people to help you continue to be strengthened as a disciple. And who they appoint? Well, they're called elders. They establish elders, pastors, leadership in these churches who their goal, their responsibility is to strengthen the disciples of that church. You can kind of find the qualifications of elder in 1 Timothy and Titus. Well, what does it take to be an elder? Or what does it take to, to be someone who, who, who can fill that seat? But that's kind of how we function and operate here, that we have elders, we have men who we believe the Spirit has led and has anointed us. And their job, their role is to make sure we are constantly strengthening one another as disciples, that we are constantly worshiping God, that we are constantly having heart change, growing in our knowledge for God, but because their call as elders is to lead us to be stronger disciples week in and week out. So why does Paul do this though? Why does he actually go back? Why does he not just go to the next city and say, hey, it worked while it can. Let me dust off my shoulders and get on to the next one. Why? It's because he knows that lopsided disciples don't get very far. Let me give you a super quick illustration. These two items here, they're, they're probably roughly the same size. You know, if you were to kind of take this egg and make it fully round, they're about the same size. But if you were to put these two things on the ground and roll them, one of them is going to roll pretty straight and pretty far. The other one, it's going to kind of wobble. Why? Well, because an egg is lopsided. It's not very uniform. It's kind of skinny over here, a little fatter over here. It needs to be squished for it to become a ball. But if I were to roll the ball, the ball would go pretty far without a lot of effort. The egg, you try to roll it, and it's going to topple. Maybe it'll kind of roll straight, then veer off. And I believe that that's kind of why Paul returns to these churches. 
He says, I don't want you to be a lopsided disciple. I don't want you to just have knowledge of God. I don't want you to just have heart change. I don't want you to think it's just about you. But he wants those three things to come together as a strong disciple. And so here's where I want to close for us as a church. How are we striving to build strong disciples here at first? How are our elders leading us to help us be strong disciples? Because I'm just going to say this, and it's been so fun, so encouraging to watch uh, the past few months here at this church, is that we are in a season of strengthening our disciples. And if that's you, if you have been taking those next steps along with our church, then keep it up. I want to applaud you and say thank you for continuing to do that with us. Our mission is secure. We are here to help each other follow Jesus. Our vision of 5,000 next steps. But in reality, what that vision is, is really just a way to say, we want people to continue to be strengthened as disciples. And we might say it in one of three ways. How might you need to be strengthened as a disciple? Maybe there's some head knowledge. Perhaps there's some heart change. Or maybe there's some helpful accountability to come along with it. If you missed kind of our group rally thing, I'm going to give you a little insight to something that I had the opportunity to share with those people. And it was this little diagram here. That when we talk about what does the life of a transformed disciple look like, it's kind of got these three attributes. Dare we call it the values of a disciple? That a value of a disciple is head knowledge. That we need to have that knowledge, that passion for God and his word. We say that that every disciple needs to have heart change, that what we learn about God, what we see in the truths of Scripture, convict us and help take us to the next level. But thirdly, we added something. You know, we've said these two for a while, the disciple had knowledge and heart change, but we were kind of convicted. I was convicted, if I'm being honest, that there was a third piece missing, and it's this one. It's helpful accountability that we are not meant to do this faith thing alone. We are not meant to go through life. We are not meant to be Christians, a bunch of solo acts who come together occasionally to worship and then go do our own thing. Think about the things in which you actually grow and mature in life. I'd venture to guess that there was someone with you the whole way. Perhaps it was a coach, a teacher, a mentor. Maybe you had a great boss who was able to to, to give you some new uh, skills in life, but there's always that accountability factor as well. This is what we're chasing after as a church. If you think about that vision, if you think about that mission, how are we going to get there? It's simple. We want environments. We want groups. We want cohorts. We want uh, student ministry, kids ministry. We want services to have these three values because we value strong discipleship here at this church. You know, Acts chapter 14 should probably resonate with a lot of us. There's good situations. There's kind of bad seasons that come our way. There's some unknown, unforeseen things that come at us. Life is never a straight line. It's never just up and to the right. Life is never just this simple, well, I just go about life. There's rhythms, is there not? There's peaks and there's valley along the whole journey. And some of us, we've had more peaks than we've had valleys. And others of us, we've certainly would probably say, I've had my fair share of valleys. I'd really like to avoid the next one. But they're a part of life. Peaks, valleys, and everything in between, the mundane, the week in to week out. But if we limit our faith to only following God at the peaks, 
We are missing on so much time. We are missing out on so much opportunity to follow and know and strengthen our discipleship. It's because we follow a God of good news, not a God of good fortune. We follow the God of good news and that good news is whether things are good, whether things are going your way, whether things are going directly as you've planned, whether you feel comfortable, whether you feel easy, whether you're a little anxious, a little full of worry, perhaps you're scared, maybe there's some fear, whether times are good, bad, or somewhere in between. The good news is that God will never leave us nor forsake us. The good news is that God always loves us and pursues us. The good news is that God is constant, ever present, and his love and his truth is always applicable to our lives. The strong disciple realizes that we follow the God of good news, not just the God of good fortune. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? Heavenly Father, we worship you and you alone because you are good. We thank you for your good news. The way in which we can have the knowledge of that gospel, the way in which that gospel uh, transforms our hearts and the way in which we are called to be accountable, to strengthen one another. Lord, we ask that we be the church and we be the disciples who pursue those attributes, those values, because we wanna be strong disciples who impact our community and our homes and our workplaces for your glory and your glory alone. I thank you for our elders, the men who have stepped up to lead this church, continue to be with them. May they be attentive to your word and to your spirit as they seek to lead us as a local body. Lord, we offer all of this to you. It's your name that we pray. Amen.